The Defense Department is embarking on another monumental probe into military culture. This time it's looking at military suicide and how it can better prevent or at least respond. Earlier this week, DOD announced the start of a new independent committee looking into the matter. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni joins me with the details. And Scott, this has been a persistent issue. I think the number is 30,000 service member suicides since 2001. Scott, tell us more about this committee, what it will do, and there's some precedent for it. Yeah, this is based basically off of something you and I talked a lot about last year, which was an independent review commission on sexual assault in the military. The important thing about this is that it's an independent review. It's not something that's coming straight from the military. They've asked people from the outside to look at this in a non-judgmental, objective way and to really make recommendations. What we got out of this sexual assault commission is more than 80 recommendations that DOD is planning on implementing over the next five years. So this is something that is uh, creating what they hope is really a sea change within the military about these sort of issues. So this next suicide prevention committee is really going to be looking at how they can change the culture and the mental health culture uh, and stigma around suicide and mental health within the military. And this committee will focus on what? Because there are a lot of factors that go into it. One is the person's brain makeup, which could be the result of a traumatic brain injury or something they bring with them when they join the military. But then there are also external factors that can trigger that sad desire to do oneself in. So what what is this committee going to look at? So I think what DOD is trying to do is any and all uh, when it comes to what, you know all the things that you just said. The Really the charter, which they haven't even created yet, but the memo that Secretary Austin put out said that it will review, this committee will review the military's activities and actions to address suicide prevention and response. And it will look further actually into the actions underway regarding sexual assault. You know, as you know, that Uh, sexual assaults and suicide and mental health very closely related. One other thing that they're going to be doing is they're having nine installations that will act as the first basis for review. Those include Fort Campbell in Kentucky, Camp Humphreys in South Korea, and Joint Base Elm North uh, Richardson in Alaska. And Alaska actually happens to be one of the highest military suicide areas. Uh, So one area that they're probably going to be putting a lot of emphasis on. And just one other thing to mention, in the next two months, DOD is going to be identifying the timeline for these installation visits. They're going to be picking people for this commission, drafting a charter. Then the work will start no later than May 14th. And then the committee will send its report to Secretary Austin on December 20th. And then finally to Congress by next February. So a pretty quick timeline considering how much they're going to be digging into military culture. And why does DOD choose this issue at this time? Was this something congressionally mandated? Yeah, so this was in the NDAA for 2022. And I think they saw a lot of successes within that uh, sexual assault and harassment commission. Uh, And then also what you mentioned, DOD really started taking in statistics in earnest after 2001. 30,000 service members is a lot of people. And, you know, with many times within this memo, they say just one service member suffering from mental health or who has killed themselves ends up being one too many. In 2020 alone, there was a total of 580 service members who died by suicide and in the active reserve and National Guard. 
That's according to John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesman. So what DOD is going to be looking for is innovative solutions to prevent and respond to suicide. Last summer, Secretary Austin went to Alaska and visited in part to look at mental health in that area and mental health of the service members. And who will be part of this committee and how will they get appointed? Right. So they're going to be appointed by DOD. And and the whole point of this is to be independent. What we saw from the Sexual Assault Commission was that they had some really high profile academics, a lot of former military, and then people who worked within the areas of sexual assaults, either for the government and policy or in you know these kind of realms of lobbying and think tank kind of realms. So we would expect maybe 13 to 15 people. That's kind of how the sexual assaults commission was set up. And then they'll probably be broken up into different of interests. So one might be mental health, one might be family, you know, depending on how they decide to, to tackle this thing. Right. And I do know that there is a DARPA project going on, and we're going to have that subject matter expert on the show in the coming days who is looking at patterns in the brain that can, as they put it, prove that the tendency to suicide in some people is a organic medical condition, almost like equivalent to diabetes, and hoping thereby to take away some of the stigma of people seeking help for it. And I imagine that might be among the options this committee might consider is ways to take away the stigma of those seeking help for mental illness. Certainly. And and that's one of the ones that they have explicitly brought up is that the stigma within the military is you know, first of all, I don't want my commander to think that I can't do my job. I need some sort of special accommodation or something like that. And then also they don't want it to be held against them for their next promotion board or held against them on assignments. So that's something that they're really trying to change, just people's understanding of mental health, that it is something just like diabetes, where you can't help that you have this this disease and it's much better to seek help when you can. Another area that they've explicitly brought out is access to guns. What they've shown in a lot of studies with throughout other parts of the government is that if there's just one more step someone can take by keeping it in a lockbox or maybe keeping that gun not necessarily as easily accessed in the household, keeping ammunition and guns apart from each other, that one extra step can keep people from actually you know, doing the what is really the worst thing possible for them. And just taking that one extra breath and thinking, maybe I should call someone or get the help I need. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni, thanks so much. Thank you. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, Welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.